Welcome to Great Speeches and Interviews on Access Sacramento and The Voice. I'm Steve Lerman. Today's program starts with the end of American exceptionalism. Andrew Basevich is perhaps the only writer to regularly contribute to both The Nation and Pat Buchanan's The American Conservative. Basevich examines the United States' daunting problem of overexpansion and overconsumption and argues for a return to pragmatism before the damage from such excessiveness becomes irreparable. Well, thanks for the kind uh, introduction. Thanks for this incredible turnout. Thanks for <clears throat> quoting the uh, review from the Washington Post as opposed to the review from the New York Times, <laughs> which said that the book was awful. But it was interesting because, I mean, if you're me, you sort of think you've arrived even to have your book noticed by the New York Times. But truthfully, the review didn't matter. And it really makes you wonder what's the dynamic that leads people to notice books or pick up books. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, it turns out it's not the New York Times for whatever, which is good. Here's what I thought I would do. Um, I think we have an hour or so together. Uh, I like to speak fairly briefly in these events because I've come to believe that uh, you much prefer to have the opportunity for give and take rather than just listen to somebody like me blather on. So I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes, uh, despite the fact that it is a big day, I think, or an interesting day at least with regard to the U.S. Uh, war in Iraq. I'm actually going to talk mostly about uh, Afghanistan, which has been, uh, apart from the events of the last 24 hours, much more in the news. However, when I finish, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Now, I have been warned that, you, maybe you know this because you come to these things, but I gather that there's, there is mics that get passed around for the questions, and so I'm supposed to identify a person to ask a question, and you have to wait for the mic to get to you. So if I don't remember to say that again... That's the rule that we're supposed to uh, adhere to. So, preliminaries done, book talk, all right? This, the title of my talk is, the title is not the title of the book. The title of the talk is Coming Home from Helmand, referring to the Helmand province in Afghanistan, but also I think probably largely referring to my sense that the time is long since past when America needs to come home in a broader sense. So here's the talk. History, I have come to believe this and I believe it passionately. History deals rudely with the pretensions of those who presume to determine its course. In an American context, this describes the fate of those falling prey to what we might call the Wilsonian conceit. Yet the damage done by that conceit outlives its perpetrators. From time to time, in some moment of peril or anxiety, a statesman appears on the scene promising to eliminate tyranny, to ensure the universal triumph of liberty, and to achieve permanent peace. For a moment, the statesman achieves the status of prophet, one who in his own person seemingly embodies the essence of the American purpose. Then reality intrudes, exposing the promises as costly fantasies. The prophet's followers abandon him. Mocked and reviled, he is eventually banished, perhaps to some gated community in Dallas. <laughs> 
Yet however brief his ascendancy, the discredited prophet leaves behind a legacy. Most obvious are the problems created and left unresolved, commitments made and left unfulfilled, debts accrued and left unpaid. Less obvious, but for that reason more important, are changes in perception. The prophet recasts our image of reality. Long after his departure, remnants of that image linger and retain their capacity to beguile. Consider how the Wilsonian vision of the United States as crusader state called upon to redeem the world has periodically resurfaced despite Woodrow Wilson's own manifest failure to make good on that promise. The prophet declaims and departs, yet traces of his testimony, however at odds with reality, remain lodged in our consciousness. So it is today with Afghanistan. The conflict that George W. Bush began, then ignored, and finally bequeathed to his successor. Barack Obama has now embraced that conflict as, in his words, the war we must win. Bush might rightly view Obama's enthusiasm for pressing on in Afghanistan as a form of vindication. Here we have a president, our current president whose run for high office derived its energy from an implicit promise to repudiate all that Bush had wrought, now endorsing the proposition that this remote, landlocked, primitive, Central Asian country constitutes a U.S. vital national security interest. The candidate who once derided the notion that the United States is called upon to determine the fate of Iraq now expresses a willingness to expend untold billions, not to mention who knows how many American lives, in order to determine the fate of Afghanistan. What is it about Afghanistan possessing next to nothing that the United States requires that justifies such lavish attention? In Washington, this question goes not only un unanswered but unasked. Among Democrats and Republicans alike, Afghanistan's importance is simply assumed, much the way 50 years ago, otherwise intelligent people simply assumed that the United States had a vital interest in ensuring the preservation of South Vietnam. Yet as then, so too today, the assumption does not stand up to even casual scrutiny. The fight in Afghanistan is essential to keeping America safe, we are told. The events of September 11, 2001 ostensibly occurred because we ignored Afghanistan. Preventing the recurrence of these events, therefore, requires that we fix the place. This widely accepted line of reasoning, reasoning overlooks the primary reason why the 9-11 conspiracy succeeded, namely that federal, state, and local agencies responsible for commercial aviation failed to install even minimally adequate security measures. We weren't paying attention. Consumed with its ABC agenda, remember ABC, anything but Clinton, consumed with its ABC agenda, the Bush administration in those days did not have its eye on the ball. So we got sucker punched. Averting another 9-11 does not require the semi-permanent occupation and pacification of Afghanistan. Rather, it requires that the United States erect and maintain robust defenses. Fixing Afghanistan is not only unnecessary, it's also likely to prove implausible. Not for nothing has the place acquired the nickname Graveyard of Empires. Of course, Americans, insistent that the dominion over which they preside does not meet the definition of empire, evince little interest in how others have fared in attempting to impose their will on the Afghans. As General David McKiernan, until recently the U.S. commander in Afghanistan, put it, quote, there's always an inclination to relate what we're 
were doing with previous nations. And he went on to add, I think that's a very unhealthy comparison. Now, McKiernan was expressing here a, a view common among the ranks of the political and military elite. We're Americans. We're different. Therefore, the experience of others does not apply. Of course, Americans like McKiernan, who reject as irrelevant the experience of others, might at least be willing to contemplate the experience of the United States itself. Listen to the voice of reason. Words of wisdom have to be ushered. A better world have to be built. Listen to the voice of reason. It's like a dark cloud, a giving way to the blue sky. Humankind must put an end to war. Or war will put an end to humankind. Africa and the world cannot afford self-pity. If something is not worth living for, it is not worth dying for. Yes, this is the voice of reason in search of liberty eternal.
death. This is the voice of reason, that shapes the conscience of humankind. That was the voice of reason. American exceptionalism with Andrew Basavit. Take the case of Iraq, now bizarrely portrayed in some quarters as a success, and even more bizarrely seen as offering a template for how to turn Afghanistan around. Six plus years after it began, six plus years after it began, Operation Iraqi Freedom has consumed something like a trillion dollars, nobody really knows for sure, with the meter still running, and has taken the lives of over 4,300 American soldiers. I mean, in the evening before the highly touted turnover of the cities to the Iraqi security forces, four Americans were killed in action in Baghdad. Meanwhile, in Baghdad, and in other major Iraqi cities, I believe it was Kirkuk today, car bombs continued to detonate at regular intervals, killing and maiming dozens. Given the embarrassing but indisputable fact that this was an utterly needless war, no weapons of mass destruction found, no ties between Saddam Hussein and the jihadists established. No democratic transformation of the Islamic of the Islamic world touched off. No road to peace in Jerusalem found in downtown Baghdad. To describe Iraq as a success, much less as a model for application elsewhere, falls nothing short of being obscene. The great unacknowledged lesson of Iraq is the one that the writer Norman Mailer identified years ago. Quote, fighting a war to fix something works about as good as going to a whorehouse to get rid of a clap. Now, for those who, despite this, still hanker to have a go at nation building, why start with Afghanistan? Why not first fix, say, Mexico? In terms of its importance to the United States, our southern neighbor, a major supplier of oil and drugs, among other commodities deemed vital to the American way of life, certainly Mexico outranks Afghanistan by several orders of magnitude. And for those who purport to believe that moral considerations rather than self-interest should inform foreign policy, to Mexico qualifies for priority attention. Consider the theft of California. Or consider more recently how the American appetite for illicit drugs and our liberal gun laws have corroded Mexican institutions and produced an epidemic of violence affecting ordinary Mexicans. We owe these people big time. Yet any politician or pundit suggesting that the United States ought to commit 60,000 or so U.S. troops, backed by a generously funded multi-year effort with expectations of a eliminating Mexican drug trafficking and, pol and political corruption would be laughed out of Washington, and rightly so. Any proposal that the United States should take on the task of establishing in Mexico City effective mechanisms of governance, of endowing Mexico with competent security forces, of reforming the Mexican school system, of protecting the rights of Mexican women. Well, anybody proposing these things in Congress, well, they'd never get their proposal to the floor of the House or the Senate for a vote. Meanwhile, though 
those who promote such programs for Afghanistan, ignoring questions of cost, and ignoring as well the corruption and the ineffectiveness that pervade our own institutions, where those people get treated like sages. The contrast between Washington's preoccupation with Afghanistan and its relative indifference to Mexico testifies to the distortion of U.S. national security pro uh, priorities induced by George W. Bush in his post-9-11 prophetic mode, distortions now being perpetuated by Bush's successor. It also testifies to a vast failure of imagination to which our governing classes have succumbed. This failure of imagine, imagination makes it literally impossible for those who possess either authority or influence in Washington to consider the possibility, A, that the solution to America's problems is to be found not out there, where there in this case is Central Asia, but here at home. B, that the people out there, rather than requiring our administrations, may well be capable of managing their own affairs, relying on their own methods. And finally, C, that to disregard A and B is to open the door to great mischief and in all likelihood to perpetrate no small amount of evil. Now, needless to say, when mischief or evil does occur, when a stray American missile kills a few dozen Afghan civilians, for instance, the costs of that failure of imagination are not borne by the people who inhabit the leafy neighborhoods of Northwest Washington, who lunch at the Palm Restaurant, and who said their, send their kids to Sidwell Friends. Another unknown soldier Another lesson learned Kick the gas can over Strike a match, get back and watch that sucker burn Smiling for the camera Keep waving to the crowd Don't let up for an instant Stay the course and make your mama proud You're the man Show them what you're made of You know They're all afraid of But your only chain is toy Another unknown soldier Who's seen it all before Twinkle in your eye 
to know the answers Long as we're safe Just hit your marks and say your lines You're the man Show them what you made of You're no longer daddy's boy Take a stand Give them what they paid for Cause you're Messages from Access Sacramento. 